Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Professor Simon Picardo, Campus Dean for ESCP Business School, London. Simon, hello. Yeah, good morning, Matthew. Good morning to you and all. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally we'd get straight into the concept of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how has this affected your organization? Well, Matthew, it's had a a profound impact on my own organization uh, and other business schools and, of course, universities. Um, The sector has been uh, massively affected. Obviously, I think the public have, uh, have, have read and tracked much of these changes in the press and in the media. The, the immediate impact, of course, for us was to see our, our campuses and our universities closed, uh, typically in the late March period. And we've been effectively in a stage of uh, a state of transition uh, since then, supporting uh, learners and student communities uh, remotely. Uh, we migrated uh, all of our courses and, and learning online uh, in late March, and it's been that way ever since. And uh, operating our teams and our staff, our faculty and our professional services teams uh, remotely. Uh, we're gearing now, uh, at least we hope, for some sort of uh, return uh, to campus life uh, with the new academic year in September. But uh, Above all of that, uh, a series of of major impacts in terms of our way of working, indeed our uh, investments in technology, our shift to digital learning, uh, transition in in pedagogy and teaching and learning support, and indeed in in service provision. And do you feel that these changes that you've been making over this period are going to be for the long term, or is it just going to be for the duration? Well, I think uh, the, the, the shift in focus to online delivery of education uh, since the very beginning of the pandemic, it, it's not a temporary uh, state of affairs. Um, it's been blatantly necessary, of course, um, but uh, it's providing in a genuine sense what a significant proportion of students were already seeking, I think, and, and indeed it's perhaps even accelerated um, a, a digitalization uh, process that was uh, beginning in many ways across the sector. But uh, we've seen uh, student demand for online offerings before the crisis, and I'm convinced that we will see student demand for online offerings after the crisis at a much higher level. And we'll see, I think, institutions and HEIs around the world much better able uh, to to meet those needs, having been uh, taken through uh, a process of of change and and transition. I'm not saying that campus-based programs uh, are in any sense not going to be uh, the dominant uh, form uh, and uh, the dominant mode for higher education provision. Uh, That will continue. But there's going to be a different blend, I think, Matthew. And... uh, You know, I think it's wrong to sort of say that, uh, you know, online teaching uh, is 
a phenomenon uh, that is linked solely to the pandemic, that we all go back to the way things were. That's a misrepresentation of things. We mustn't underestimate or miscalculate the size of the online education market, flexible and distance learning education market before uh, the crisis. It was significant. But uh, yes, I think there will be a change in balance and, uh, and, and really, I think, a change in the level of capability of organizations to offer high quality education uh, in this form. And what does this mean for the bottom line for universities and educational establishments around the world? Uh, because surely uh, the justification for a tuition uh, rate can't be the same if people aren't using physical facilities. Well, you know, you touch upon what's become a very big debate. I mean, institutions have had to ask themselves what is appropriate in terms of uh, pricing and, and charging. And uh, there is, a, there is a, an argument that, as you rightly say, uh, there is an argument that the, perhaps the online learning experience is not equivalent to the campus learning experience. And certainly students do not experience the range of services that universities and, in my case, business schools have to offer if they are uh, online rather than on campus. But I think that, you know, from uh, my own point of view, the issue is, is a simple one. It comes down to the nature of the experience of the online learner, the quality of education, the sophistication of education, uh, the support levels and form provided by faculty and uh, professional services staff, and the ability to uh, participate in a range of uh, activities, workshops, for example, seminars, webinars, all of which can add uh, considerable value to the learning experience. So I I don't personally um, buy the argument that just because a program is consumed online, that somehow there's an entitlement to a lower fee. I think the test has to be what is the full package? What is the full uh, bundle of learning opportunities and engagements one experiences when one is an online learner? It's necessarily different in form uh, to that which one experiences on campus, but it's not necessarily inferior. I mean, I'm absolutely clear that, you know, we've given extraordinary um, an extraordinary amount of thought uh, and imagination to the ways in which we can support our online learners in current period. And although some of the things that they can do uh, on campus uh, are not possible in current period, may not be possible for a little while yet, there have been extraordinary innovations and activities uh, scheduled online, uh, virtual online collaboration tools and platforms have been used extensively. Uh, projects have been conducted across cultures, countries, and time zones online with corporate partners. So I think there is the ability to continue to offer the rich mix that one gets uh, through campus education, even online. It just necessarily takes a different form. But the uh, the, the bigger question you raise about financial impact uh, raises some other questions that I think are of, of huge significance. Obviously, uh, international student income uh, is pivotal uh, to the sector here in the UK. 
uh, pivotal to the, the, the well-being, health and condition of universities and business schools. And I suppose our greatest fear has been perhaps that if international students aren't able to come here to the UK to study on campus, that they will go elsewhere, not simply sign up for online versions of, uh, of our courses. And of course, if that's the case, we take, we take a significant uh, hit and penalty. I mean, the, the, the numbers are quite extraordinary in terms of the, uh, the cash value attaching uh, to uh, international student uh, mobility. I mean, it's over half a million international uh, learners here in the UK higher education uh, sector with another half a million plus registered on our, uh, our programs in other countries through the TNE uh, model. Well, we should touch on leadership uh, before we run out of time. Um, I always like to start this part of the conversation off uh, by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Well, I think um, leadership for me, it, it, it's, it's about uh, vision. Uh, it's about uh, the raising of uh, an individual's uh, sights. Uh, to the level at which they can, I think, uh, really define a, a, a vision, an image of how things should be or how things should uh, proceed. And once having uh, defined uh, that vision or image of how things might be or should be, it's about the ability to guide others in a direction that takes the organization towards that image or, or vision. So I think for me, it's, it's not just a question of, of, of charting a course or visioning a course. It's about the ability of an individual to inspire and guide others uh, to join together to make, that, uh, to make that journey with a shared sense of purpose or intentionality that I think a good vision uh, introduces to the collective. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Uh, I, uh, I often talk about this and I often say that I think it's fundamentally a trust-based style of leadership. I think it's very difficult for uh, an individual to, to, to lead uh, or to hold teams together or to inspire uh, individuals, if there isn't the ability to engender a basic level of trust. Now, the question then is, well, what is that trust in? I mean, I think it's part a matter of trusting one's competence and one's ability to carry out the basic functions of the role. But I think it's also an element of trust uh, in the individual's uh, fairness, in the individual's decency, in the individual's uh, morality and the individual's ability to serve, the ability to to serve the interest of the team and the organization as a whole and not to play uh, to the individual's own personal uh, interests or, or, or ego. So I, I like to talk about a trust-based uh, mm -hmm. leadership approach. Um, behind that, it's important, I think, of course, that uh, one empowers individuals across the organization. I like to, to talk about people working with me and not not for me. Um, but again, I think that uh, the leadership skills that we uh, increasingly uh, rely upon 
uh, as leaders in contemporary organizations are to do with these key uh, ethical values of sort of honesty, integrity, and, and, and trust, first and foremost. And where would you say you developed your leadership style from? Did you have a particular role model or was it more circumstance-based? It's funny. I mean, I come from, in, in many respects, a sort of non-conventional background for for an academic leader. I was the sort of first in the family to uh, to reach university. I came from, uh, you know, the working class background that was entrepreneurial uh, in its character. And I think, I think that... Uh, my uh, inspiration or uh, education, if you prefer, came from a family uh, business uh, setting, a, a busy father and a mother working in a family business uh, context. And I think what I, what I learned from all of them, that uh, one's reputation, um, one's reputation with, um, with, with buyers, with sellers, with customers, with, with partners, with key uh, that the reputation one built ultimately came down to your decency, your honesty, and, and your integrity, and people's trust in you as an individual, as an organization, as a, as a brand. Uh, and I suppose it's typical, isn't it, of a small family business, that there's a sort of culture of uh, entrepreneurialism and uh, an innovation uh, that, that has to exist in order to uh, to drive that business, and I think I think some of those attributes I think I uh, I, I saw in uh, in my parents, and uh, I think that's uh, in some respects shaped the way that I've approached my my own job and my own approach in in education, which wasn't a sector I ever thought I would be in, but what, which mm. is a blessing. Uh, you know, obviously it's a it's an industry where one literally has the ability to to shape lives and influence the way people. Uh, think and behave, and I think all of us in education have that sense of responsibility that we instill the right values in the individuals that come through our organizations and, and institutions, because they go on to make such a profound difference in so many cases. Now, unfortunately, our time together has uh, run out, but before I let you go, Simon, what does the next uh, 12 months have in store for ESCP? Well, ESCP uh, Business School, as an international business school here in the UK, a leadership business school here in the UK, has to uh, continue uh, to meet the challenges of the, the pandemic. Uh, we're far from past uh, the crisis, and this will be a challenge for us and for others. We, we have uh, Brexit headwinds, uh, and these will have to be uh, navigated. And we also, like other uh, higher educational institutions, have to respond to the realities of what looks like being a deep and pronounced recession, uh, and also to help support our local communities in our different countries, not least here uh, in, in, in northwest London, to meet their own challenges. Well, Simon, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. It's been a a fantastic opportunity to discuss these issues with you. And I do hope we can have you back on when things get back uh, to a more even keel. But for now, Simon, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. That was Professor Simon Mercado, Campus Dean for ESCP Business School. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way I, i'm not sentimental about this things will revert mm -hmm. but actually i think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much... If I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters, but I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.